Daniel 9, 23 through 27. It's 100 words. It's a prophecy of Daniel 9. There's 49 words and 49 words with two words left in the center to make 100. If you take the first 49 words and you count all the way up to the 59th and 50th words right in the center, you'll see that those two words is 77. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. Into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 40. I interview William Struess about his book series, Prophecies and Patterns. We get into the number 13. We get into Daniel's 70 weeks, Jubilees. So get ready. We're going to look at some charts. Let's get weird. First, let me say uh, I was uh, I was blessed by reading your your book series. Really enjoyed it, and so I think I was probably about halfway through the second book, and I thought, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to reach out and see if I, I I can get this guy on. So it's a pleasure having you. Well, thanks for the invitation, and I'm glad something in the books challenged you and inspired you there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I'm ready to get into it. I actually have some uh, some charts from the book. I wanted I, I wanted to actually show while while you comment and talk about some of the stuff we're going to get into today. Um, but let's start with your testimony. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Okay. My background, I'm a plumbing contractor here in Southern Arizona. I was homeschooled for from sixth grade to 12th grade back when it wasn't really cool. Um, my parent, my father passed away when I was a real young child. And um, maybe that was something that in challenged me to really dig into dig into God's word and be more curious about stuff. He was a man of faith and, you know, losing your dad at a young age is something that's challenging to say the least. And um, I was raised in a Christian home. So, you know, I, I believed from a very young age, you know, I, I didn't have one of those experiences where I, um, you know, came to Christ at a later time and later date in life. I've, it's, yeah. For me, it's been a walk of faith um, through my life since very young age when I, my mom led me to Christ. And um, I, I guess I never had any real huge crises of faith or, you know, um, some conversion later in life where I was, um, you know, at the rock bottom and had to change my life. So yeah. um, I know, if, I believe if faith is, and Christ is without works and Christ alone, his atoning blood is what covers our sins. And we're all sinners and we all need Christ. And my books are a different way of seeing that in the scriptures. I believe the biblical message is congruent from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I believe it's about our creator's redemptive plan for mankind. Amen. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome testimonies. Encouraging. I think for anyone listening, uh, you know, we all have, have different stories, but I, I always love to hear um, stories a lot like yours uh, of, you know, those that have came to know Christ at a young age and we're just we're, we're faithful through um, that. That's really encouraging um, to see that, you know, Christ has uh, been faithful uh, in your life. So uh, I came across your your book series uh, and I'd like to really touch on all three today. It's a okay. series of three. Um, and you, you know, I came across your website, you got several articles on there as well. So, uh, talk about how you, um, 
started to begin writing uh, and, and start up, you know, the, the website and uh, how, how all that came about. Okay. Um, my mom, at a very young age, she knew I was interested in Bible prophecy. When my grandfather passed away, he left us a huge library, um, a collected collection of all sorts of biblical books, and everything from Calvinism to predestination and, um, you know, all sorts of different books on Bible prophecy. And I read them as a young kid through my teenage years. I was, like I said, I was homeschooled. So I, I was, I've been a searcher for a long time I've, in faith. You know, I, I believed, but I wanted to know the truth of it because we all have different opinions on some things. And I um, read a book on Bible prophecy, one about the rapture. And then I read pretty much everything I could get to my hands on. And by the time I was in my late teens, my mom noticed this. And for my 18th birthday, she um, bought me a plane ticket to a prophecy conference in Orlando, Florida. Oh, sweet. That was the first time I've ever, I think, remember flying, actually. So anyway, I went to that prophecy conference. And that, of course, only stoked my interest in Bible prophecy. And um, from there, I started researching specifically Daniel 9. Um, it kept drawing my attention because of the divergent opinions on the prophecy. And yeah. I wanted to know... Could I track it down and find out the facts of the matter? I mean, there were so many different opinions on it, whether it's, you know, a historical point of view or a post-tribulational point of view or a pre-tribulational point of view on Daniel 9, you know, whether there's all 70 weeks are together or there's a gap in between. And so I, I set out to research that myself. And I found a book one time that, touched on a different view of the, the prophecy as far as the timing of it. And it talked about lunar cycles in the biblical calendar and the, or the Jewish biblical calendar being lunar cycles of yeah. a certain number of um, lunations, if you want to call it that. And so I, I researched, it didn't make much sense to me that, but I revisited that over the years. And when I finally got enough body of evidence to realize that much of what I understood about Daniel 9 and the starting point of it, Artaxerxes and the, the Persian kingdom, I realized that there was some problem with the prophecy. And that really led me to the books and writing about, I spent a ton of time, as you probably noticed, on the chronology of the Second Temple era and why that's so important to understanding the prophecy of Daniel 9. Wow. Uh, yeah, I love that story, man. That's so cool. Um, I mean, I, I can say I had an interest in Bible prophecy, um, but um, just it's so neat to see even at a young age, you know, because I'm reading the book now and clearly, um, you know, you've done, um, you've done your research and you spent a lot of time. Um, it, it comes through uh, in the series. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's really cool. And I, I love getting into, um, you know, all, all the nitty gritty and myself too, have, have spent a lot of time looking at, um, you know, Daniel's seven week prophecy. And of course, like you mentioned, there's, there's just so many different, different interpretations. Um, and you, you brought something I think unique, uh, to the table that I, I never really heard of or thought of until I read this book. And so, uh, I think it's just really cool. Uh, it's exciting uh, to see that, um, you had that kind of thirst for knowledge and it's cool to see that it came from, from your family as well. You know, it's a generational thing. You said these books were passed down from your grandfather and then your mother supported that, um, you know, that sort of thirst for knowledge and by, you know, taking you to a prophecy conference. That's, uh, that's awesome, man. Um, you know, what would you say? Because, you know, I find there's kind of like, 
extremes where there's people that obsessed with, uh, you know, Bible prophecy, and there's other people that just kind of scoff at it because it's confusing. They don't understand it. And then they look at someone who is invested so much into it, um, especially when it comes to chronologies and timelines and trying to figure things out. And they say, oh, well, you know, it's not for us to know, um, you know, what, what do you say, you know, to someone who kind of takes on that attitude towards Bible prophecy that's maybe afraid of it um, or just doesn't seem to bother with because they don't feel like we should know these things? Good question. Um, to me, it comes down to a stewardship, really. I believe. I believe mm -hmm. the Bible to be true. And it doesn't mean I'm going to believe exactly like somebody else, but as a steward of God's words and as a, somebody who wants to trace out what he set out for us and try to understand what he was giving to us. I mean, to me, that's a privilege. Not a, a burden. Um, I'm fascinated. It's like I have many analogies I've made in my books and stuff. It's like digging in a gold mine. Mm. I mean, there's nuggets in there that you're only going to find by searching in faith. You know, it has to be within faith. If you're not looking for the truth and you're not looking out there in faith, you're going to find plenty of stuff to disagree with, plenty of stuff to poke holes in. But when you're looking on faith, I think that's the secret ingredient, if you want to call it that, that will shape our lives and direct our lives towards what God would have us to find in his word. And um, faith is a powerful agent in, especially in researching stuff, you know, believing that God put the truth in there, not we're fallible people. We're going to misinterpret it. We're going to do stupid stuff with the information he's given us. But, you know, ultimately if we can in faith believe that there is a single truth there, a single truth that we can search out and find. I think each of us as stewards have a responsibility to try to move that ball closer to the finish line. And none of us are going to have it all figured out. But stewardship's a big thing for me as far as, especially like Daniel 9 and the prophecies, because I've read the books. You know, I've read hundreds of books on it, not to brag, but just because I'm interested in it. And that knowledge is maybe realized there's a hundred authors and there's 300 different opinions. So you know, I think stewardship is ultimately what is drives my interest in Bible prophecy. And I, I, I want I'm looking forward to the return of Christ. Um, that's something that I think consummates the whole, if you want to call it creation project, like Dr. Henbury says, yeah, it's from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That story isn't just about the sin in Genesis and then the second coming of Christ and then the resurrection but that story does continue into revelation and the new heaven and new earth and the restoration of all things so I think Bible prophecy is the perspective Christians should filter the knowledge of the Bible through and understand that it's this is just one piece of a, a, a redemptive plan that starts in Genesis and doesn't end in um, the second coming or you know the first century it still continues into the book of Revelation and the, the consummation of all things. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's an awesome um, response. You know, I love the humility there. Um, and, you know, I too have just naturally had that interest. And I know that's not true for everybody, you know, probably for right. a lot of people that are listening, um, you know, to this show, probably also sharing that interest. Um, but I think it's also, it's, it's so important not to, not to scoff, uh, you know, it's, it's someone that, that has that, that bent towards prophecy, just because yeah. you, you don't, um, anyway, if you do, I think you're in for a treat and I highly recommend your, your series. Um, 
So one thing that kind of stood out to me, there are a lot of people that write uh, about biblical prophecy, especially to the degree where you have, where you are studying the Jubilees um, and, you know, Daniel's 70-week prophecy and you're studying chronology and timelines, it's real easy to sort of make conclusions and say, well, I can narrow this down to a certain period. I can narrow this down to an even smaller period, a year. If I studied the feast, you know, it's so tempting to narrow it down and say, well, it looks like Christ is going to be coming back on this date. You didn't do that in the book. That's something that stood out to me. Um, So uh, is there a reason why you decided not to date set? And just speak on that in general. Uh, yes, several reasons. First of all, it's I'm a fallible human being, and <laughs> I don't have enough knowledge or information to be able to understand totally the mind of God. You know what I mean? That's there's no yeah. way to do that. And the more I study God's Word, the more I understand how little I understand. Mm. Um, and I, that seemed maybe seem like a contradiction, but the more I read, the more unfathomable there is there to to comprehend. I mean, it's it's really a mine, a treasure, a treasure chest. And the more we mine it, the more there is to learn, the more there's to know. And specifically in, in Bible prophecy and date setting, I guess we, in my mind, I need to clarify the context of that. There's a lot of date setting in the Bible. You know, they tell us about the time of certain events in the Bible, that's date setting. But in, as far as Bible prophecy goes, in the book of Revelation, it tells 42 months, and there's 30, 1,335 days and 1,260 days. Those are dates in there from a starting point to an ending point that which yeah. at some point, some generation is going to be able to, they're put there for date setting, if you want to be right down to it. Now, if we're getting yeah. to the date setting of the, the rapture or the second coming of Christ, in my studies, I don't have enough information to make that judgment. I mean, it's, yeah. it's purely would be specul- speculative and We've seen enough date setting. I'm sure you've read enough or seen enough or um, watched enough to know that ultimately it creates a stumbling block to our fellow believers. And, you know, we have to be careful about that. I think there will come a time towards the end when there will be need for date setting. Say, listen, this is what's going to happen in this 42 months and you need to be on guard or you need to be paying attention. But as far as this rapture, the second coming um, specifically, I personally don't have enough information to make that judgment and I've studied it in depth. So yeah. I'm just not comfortable making that. I mean, I like to think I, I can see general patterns in the scripture. I know if you've read my Jubilee code, you saw some of those awesome patterns, but yeah. I'm just not interested in making date setting. I don't think as fallible human beings, I, I think the prophecy is more for us to look back after the event and say, listen, man, how awesome a God we serve. How yeah. awesome that he set these things motion, these wonderful events from generation. I mean, from, from gener- Genesis to Abraham and all, all these events, pivotal events, and they, they f- fell right in within a fabric, a framework, if you will. And we can look back and say, yes, this is the God we believe in. And what is said, what he said was true. I think it's prophecies most valuable in retrospect, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's wisdom. Um, you know, sometimes when I look at sort of the market for you know, this type of material, I, I wonder if some of it is sort of just to, because if you put out a date there, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to get someone's attention. And I guess until that date comes, there's going to, it's going to generate more and more buzz. Right. So, you know, sometimes I do wonder, well, is this because 
they they truly believe it or are they putting it out there because they feel like it's going to create generate more sales that sort of thing um and i think there's probably a little bit of, of, of both of that going on um you know i, I know i've read people's material and there, there's certain you know it, it's going to happen on on a certain date but uh i like what you said because it's true the more you know i've studied you know, you, you figure something out, you learn something, you learn something more, you learn something more. And the more and more you learn, the more you kind of unlearn what you've already learned. So that's what you're, you're kind of <laughs> yeah. getting where you realize that you don't know as much because, because you kind of get to a point where you ah, I kind of got this figured out, but then you, you learn more material and, and you realize that, no, you actually didn't have that figured out. And so the more and more you do that, you, the more and more you realize that, uh, you know, there's a lot of valid points out there and uh, you're right. It's, it, it's, it's fun and it's, it's fulfilling, I think, to try to seek it out. Um, but knowing that we are infallible and, and we'll, we'll probably get it wrong. And I think um, even when it kind of gets into to date setting, a lot of times I can say, okay, well, there's, there's probably something to this, but how do we, how can we say, with a surety that this means that he's going to come back on this very day, you know, cause we have these ideas that prophecy is going to run out um, in a certain way. And we're probably, we're probably going to get it wrong. It's, it's probably not going to work out uh, how we, how we thought it did. Um, so I think it's interesting to take a look at dates, but not necessarily say, well, this is what this means, right? Cause we can see patterns, but that, you know, we don't necessarily know what the, what the patterns mean we don't know what's going to happen on a certain date but we can say well this is there's you know maybe perhaps there's something happening on these years maybe on these feast days we know we don't know right. um so anyway um your your first book is called the 13th enumeration um so you know how'd you come up with that title and and get into kind of um the whole you know what you found about the number 13 and how that ties right. into it to jesus and uh yeah, I guess uh, let's, let's start with the title. Um, okay. What does that title, mean? Thirteenth Yeah, the thirteenth enumeration. Basically, it's the thirteenth name, the thirteenth list, the thirteenth name in the list, um, and it's it's appropriate, really, if you think about it. Matthew one is a foundation. It's the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, which is telling telling us about the Messiah, the Old Testament Jewish Messiah. I mean, I think we sometimes detach ourselves from the Old Testament, unfortunately. The first book of the New Testament is the bridge, and it was written to a Jewish audience, most um, commentators believe now. So it has that Jewish symbolism to a Jewish audience, but it's that bridge between the Old Testament prophecies and the reality that was Christ, or Yeshua. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's Jesus, but I mean Yeshua is his Hebrew name, which means Yahweh's salvation. So to me, it's important to look at that list. And I got curious about it because I read it over the years. There's missing names and there was all sorts of fanciful theories for that. You know, some of the kings were really bad and they left their names out because of that. And that didn't make any sense to me the more I studied it because most of those kings in that list were idolaters or bad or something. You know, I mean, how do you pick the guy that was the real sinner there? So yeah. that didn't make any sense to me. Then I actually laid it out one day and I laid it out as in what we think as intended. In other words, it said there's 14 generations from Abraham to um, David and 14 generations from David to the carrying away of Babylon and then the 14 generations to the Messiah, to Yeshua Jesus. And I, I laid that out on a piece of paper because I'm a visual guy and I like, to, I like lists and I like chronology. So I laid it out in my Excel spreadsheet. 
And I realized really quickly that there wasn't 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations mm -hmm. of 42 names. There was only 41 names. So that right mm -hmm. there, you have a, a dilemma. Either you believe God inspired that list or somebody made a mistake. Yeah, so, yeah. Can I show that, uh, the, yeah. that layout? Yeah, sure. Just for the, the viewer. There it is. I trust you can see that as well. Right. Cool. Yeah. So uh, talk, talk about that. Okay. In that list, if you look in the second column, second column between the sixth and seventh generation, there was three names left out. And if you, in that second column, if you scroll down the bottom between the 13th and 14th name, there was, there was also a name, single name left out, jo Jehoiakim. And I started getting suspicious when I thought about, First of all, like I said from the beginning, I believe in faith that the Bible is inspired. I believe that it was done intentionally. I don't believe it was a mistake. So my default program in life is to look for a reason. It's yeah. obviously not accurate as far as the Old Testament list goes, because there's four names missing. So if it's not accurate, but it's specifically intended to be that way, why? What's the reason? Yeah. So I, I took territory apart. And I found that, yes, Jesus was the 13th name in the third, third column of names as described by Matthew. In reality, he's the 13th generation or the 13th enumeration, as I like to call him. But then I got thinking about that. Jesus is the first, first Adam, second Adam, if they call, call him. After his resurrection, he became a risen savior. And I thought, well, how what cool of symbolism, if nothing else, that would make if Jesus was, came literally as a 13th generation. But he, after his resurrection, he became, he filled in that 14th generation. If This might have just been Matthew's um, attempt to show that his Jewish audience, it was a neat symbolism there. Yeah. That's where it all started with me. It wasn't much more complicated than that. But then I started digging into the names and I saw some deeper symbolism there. 13 and 14 started coming up all over the Bible for me. And I went, wait a second, this, this has gone beyond coincidence. There's something else got to be going on here. Then I started thinking about the biblical calendar, the it's lunar solar calendar, where mm -hmm. we have 13 or 14 days of waxing light and 13 or 14 days of waning light. And I got to thinking about what better picture than Jesus as that, you know, if you know about the biblical feast days, those are pictures of Jesus, of the Messiah, of his first coming and theoretically of his second. What better place than to show a biblical calendar than show symbolism of 13 or 14? And I thought maybe that's what Matthew was trying to get across to his Jewish, Jewish audience. So that's where initially the 13 and 14 um, uh, symbolism came from, is the list of Matthew in the first chapter of the New Testament. I said, wait, there's God, there's something here. Yeah. So you think, um, I'm going to pull up that chart again so the viewer can see. So we have, you know, Yeshua, Jesus as the mm -hmm. 13th enumeration here uh, on this kind of third group of 14 generations. Right. And then yet, he is also the 14th. So he's, he's both the 13th and the 14th, 13th in his first and then second, uh, I'm sorry, 14th in his second coming. Yeah. After the resurrection is what I was, I was what my, my thought behind it is, you know, yeah. the 13th, 13 throughout history has had this stigmatism to it and come to find out mm -hmm. it's, it's a stigmatism or the, some circles, a uh, uh, cult meaning of the God man, the coming of the homo, homo deus, the God man, mm -hmm. that's six and seven, that, Symbol, symbolism of six and seven. And I got thinking about that. King David and Yeshua is going to rule from the throne of King David. We have King David as a 14th generation in that first column. 
all the prophecies in the Old Testament in some way point us to the rule of Christ and the restoration of all things and the throne of King David. And I thought that symbolism is shown in this list. I mean, it doesn't take much of a leap to see that Matthew is showing his Jewish audience that even the generations here point to the, um, the prophecy of Yeshua being the suffering servant like Isaiah 53 and the other passages and then that ruling king on the throne of David. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, that was a huge takeaway from your book. It was awesome to see, as you pointed out, how many, how just all the places where we see the number 13 kind of pointing to Christ. I thought it was really neat. Um, so I'm kind of going off script here, but speaking of Jesus ruling on David's throne, do you see that as, as happening right now? Do you see that as happening in the future, uh, in a thousand year millennium or, or, or both? Okay. I believe the seed for the kingdom of Christ was um, planted, if you will, at the resurrection. And that kingdom will be growing all the way to his rule. I do not believe that it, as Christians, we are the one that's going to set up that kingdom. I believe we can't do it without Christ. So yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a kingdom identity type of guy who believes that everything's going to get better and better and that Christ's church is going to make things right. I mean, we had 2,000 years to try that idea, and obviously that hasn't worked. Um, we are in a pretty sad state in this world right now as far as if, if Christianity really was the kingdom of God, okay? So we failed, either failed in our, our, our challenge there or that's not that's a misinterpretation of, of scripture on that, in my opinion. I yeah. believe that it will take Christ's physical rule on this earth to make things right. Um, yeah. I think we have a responsibility and stewardship to do our part wherever we act, we fall in that timeline before he comes. So I'm not one that says, you know, you know, bury our head in the sand, but uh, I don't believe we'll be able to accomplish that without his direct intervention. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, we'll move on from, from 13, but I, I think initially a lot of people, he'll, they'll hear 13 and they'll immediately associate that with Satanism. Uh, and I was sort of indoctrinated to the idea that 13th was, 13 was basically an evil number. Uh, right. I've, I've read a lot on, you know, in, in satanic occultic circles, how right. significant that number 13 is. So maybe a comment on that before we move on from 13. Right. And I've read a lot of those books, too. And I, I was under the same impression, too. It's like that hidden number in the Bible. Like all of a sudden, when you start to see it, it's covered up by a deception in a, in a way. Christ if you believe there's any significance to numbers in the Bible, Jesus is the, the God man. I mean, that's, he is, he's six, he's a man and he's God, seven, he's perfection. He's the mm -hmm. number 13. If you want to use just that simple symbolism there. Wow. I, I, all I can do is show examples in the, in the Bible. Why 13, 14 is not satanic. I mean, because the, ultimately that should be our source, not the superstitions of the world or the, or the Satan's, obvious attempt to cover up that idea i mean even for goodness right. sakes we have 13 we don't put 13 floors in our buildings um, yeah. you know i mean it, yeah. there's craziness out there about the number 13 and it doesn't make any sense especially in a logical world and I, I that was one of those things that intrigued me so i started digging into anything that had to do with 13 and tried to figure out where was the source of this i mean even mm -hmm. biblical times if we can go back to the earliest i think i found was with esther and the 13th day you know of Purim when that um, the edict went out, and I have a really interesting article about that 13th um, Zitzurvida, that the Persian holiday of casting out 13, 
And I think that's personally where that original superstition came from. But it had to do with the 13th and 14th day of Purim, where the Jews um, were Satan attacked the Jews specifically. He was trying to cast out the um, in Persian culture, cast out the 13. He was trying to get rid of them. And you can trace that back to the book of Esther. So it was fascinating to start with me there uh, was one of the places I found. And then, you know, I, I'm sure you read in the book about Apostle Paul talking about this middle wall partition in the Bible where Jew and Gentiles are separated from the presence of God. And I thought, well, that was interesting. So I dug into that and come to find out when Jesus and Paul walked those things, those stones of the court, temple court, there was 13 steps. And I mean, 14 steps and 13 gates that, that separated mankind from the presence of God. Mm. Was, I mean, there was symbolism he was talking about, and it was a symbolism of 13 and 14 that Jesus, the Yeshua, was the barrier that was broken down. That he, he broke down that barrier that man had set up, to, or God had set up in a way, between man and the presence of God in the temple. And that was that temple symbolism was a figure Paul pointed to back there that even in Christ Jesus, that middle wall partition is broken down. That middle wall was 13 gates. And the steps wow. leading to that in the temple area was 14 steps. So I thought that was a really another neat place to see that. And Paul was talking about that one. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And yeah, you did address that in the book. And for me, it brought more validation because, of course, if this number is significant and important um, to, to God, then, you know, Satan would want to, you know, take that and pervert it. Um, so and I think it's probably what, we, what we've seen with, with that number. But uh, you also talk about pi towards the end of the book. And I thought that, you know, it was interesting. I think that's something that stood out to me. Um, so talk about pi, not pi that we eat, but the, the kind of the number we see in math kind of show up right. all the time. Um, we abbreviate it to just 3.14. Um, so, you know, how is pi, how is God st stamped that, uh, that number? To me, it, it, I, I like digging into interesting stuff. And I don't know if I can say this was intentional. I believe it is because it fits with, what I see in the scripture, but I'm okay if people think that's just nonsense, okay? Because I mean, I really, right. it doesn't really matter to me. I think it's really cool. And in, in, in one of the things in Jewish tradition is they often, or even in biblical tradition, if you look in the book of Jeremiah, you see him talking about Shikshak. And Shikshak was, scholars for the longest time didn't understand who that was. It was only um, centuries later that they figured out Jeremiah did an Atbash cipher. He reversed the letters in that to conceal the name of um, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon, or, excuse me, it's Babylon. And the BBL and the Shitshak, he actually wrote an Atbash cipher where he reversed the letters in there just to like a, a literary device to bring emphasis to it. So yeah. in, in Jewish tradition, they've caught onto that over time. And th th reversing numbers or letters in, in, in passages has been something that's been done biblically. So I thought, okay, I recognized the first seven numbers in pi. And I said, if you reverse those first number seven numbers in pi, you have the very essence of the biblical calendar there. Not any, I mean, you don't have to take it any farther than that. We have 13 to 14 and 29.5, which is the lunar cycles and the, the, the waxing and waning of the sun and the lunar cycles of 29.5. You reverse that. To me, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe Yahweh is really cool. And I think he leaves nuggets for those who are going to search it out. I think that's one of his nuggets. And he just flipped it around. So if somebody would look at it and say, oh, dude, that is so cool. And, you know, I mean, there, that matches the calendar. And then I also look for other stuff 
God, for some reason, chose the Hebrew language to bring us his Old Testament, okay? Mm -hmm. there's, I don't think there's anything you want to say special about the Hebrew language, except that he chose that as his conduit for uh, the language to use for mankind to get his testimony of Jesus, okay? I mean, the Old Testament part of it, all the Old Testament prophecies, all that stuff that brings us to the point of Christ in the New Testament. So Hebrew is special. He chose it. That's the conduit. One of the interesting things about Hebrew language is the fact that they don't have numbers. They have letters with numerical value. That's just a fact. That's not yeah. any mumbo jumbo. That's not any invention of man. That's just how the Hebrew language works. So letters have values. So I looked at the value of Yeshua. And since I'm already on this pie interesting thing, I thought, well, what if, where would I find 391, the value of Yeshua's name, um, the Hebrew name, Jesus in the Old Testament? Where would I find this in pie? So I, when I got downloaded a million um, digits of pi, and I went in my spreadsheet and added that all in there, and then I, I numbered it, and then I started searching it, which is really easy to do. And come to find out, 391, the Hebrew value of Jesus's name is found in the 1842nd, I believe, digit of pi. Well, that's, it's interesting, you know, nothing totally stood out for me for that, but what right. was interesting was on both sides of that, we had 26 name of Yahweh, and on the other side, we have 41, the place value of Abraham's name. The two things that, that link the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we have Matthew's list of 41 names. So we have these symbolic numbers that on the first place in the digits of pi, they're found. The first place, okay? Not, and it's the only occurrence in the, that, up to that point in the scripture. And we have just happened, this Hebrew value of Jesus' name just happens to be flanked on both sides by the yeah. value of J Yahweh's name. And the value of Abraham's name. Okay. Now you add to me, that's just like blown out of the way, blown out of the water, non-coincidental. That has to have a reason for that. Okay. How, what's coincidental? I've searched the million digits of pi and there's only twice that I can find that those seven numbers are found anywhere else in the first digit, million digits of pi. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And yeah. to me, that's, that's as far as it's gone. I mean, I'm not willing to stand theologically on that, of course, but I'm saying, yeah. I believe God leaves treasures in there for us to dig out and find. Yeah, no, I thought that was awesome uh, because I'd already, I've heard, um, you know, uh, let's do a podcast on the number of pi and where it shows up and just, uh, you know, how special that number is. And so it was cool to see, like dig into the digits and kind of seek out some things there. I thought that was so awesome. So yeah. um, I'll, I'll give links uh, in the show notes uh, for anyone listening that wants to actually download uh, the books and kind of dig deeper into this because um, that was just one of those things I thought was so cool. Um, but I'd like to get into the, the second book now, which is uh, the focus of it is Daniel 70 weeks prophecy. Okay. Um, and let me see if I can share my screen date again, because one, one thing that uh, really stood out to me um, was this, this, there's a, it's hotly debated the, the, the start date. Uh, and for mm -hmm. there's one uh, I, I don't I don't I'll see if I can maybe pull up that graphic, but there's there's debate about the the start date of uh, i guess when when the clock started on these 70 weeks um right. you know the, the prophecy mentions a decree that goes out to rebuild jerusalem and there's several decrees that we see kind of in, in the old testament and you know you kind of had uh, i thought a very interesting uh take on on that start date and let me here we go i'm gonna actually pull up those those the kind of traditional four dates okay. um just the listener can, can kind of see those and then uh i'll have you comment on 
on kind of where you landed from your studies uh, on okay. when that actually began. So hopefully you can see that, but these are kind of the traditional like four dates that, that people kind of debate around as far as when it began. Um, okay. So if you can just kind yeah. of comment on, on these and, and just what you came up with, because I thought it was so interesting. Okay, the first one of course is the decree of Cyrus in 536 that allowed the Jewish people to return and build the temple and the city. I think that's important to note here that it was both the temple and the city that they were allowed to um, rebuild. Um, the second um, date there is Darius, the second year of Darius Histaspes, which was the, um, known uh, historically as Darius the Great, and his degree, decree, which allowed the Jewish people to return and build the city. Now, it's important here to just differentiate this here. Cyrus allowed the Jewish people to return after 70 years of Babylonian captivity in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah, which said it would only last 70 years. And Daniel mentions this right in the opening chapter of Daniel 9. He says, listen, I knew by Je Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah, that this was going to take place. And here we are close to the end. And um, Daniel's really excited because he believes God too. He says, this was only yeah. going to be 70 years. I'm ready to go. When, yeah. when are we going to return to Jerusalem? So they returned to Jerusalem and nothing happened. They laid a few temple foundation stones and the enemies of the Jewish people for the next 16 years tormented them, um, used counselors and basically the lawyers of the day to run interference back and forth between Persia and the governors there and said, listen, these people are rebellious people. These are not in the king's best interest to allow them to build. So basically the Jewish people lost heart in building the temple. They said, listen, man, this is basically too hard. We're not going to get this done. So 16 years they didn't get much farther than some temple foundation stones. Then, and this is, I think I get so excited about this because it's its so cool. 520, God said, Yahweh of the Bible said, okay, it's time. Haggai, and he went to Haggai and then he went to Zechariah. said, listen, go to the people and tell them, stop building your own houses. Get busy building my house. It's time that your my house needs to be built. So in the 520 BC, Yahweh came down and with two witnesses, Haggai and Zechariah, he said, it's time to return. The word is Hebrew word is shub, to return and build. It's what you left off of, what you're not paying attention to, you're busy building your houses and getting your own wealth. Go back and build my house and then see what happens to what, you know, how, how much I'm going to bless you. So uh, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the people and they got busy. And just within a very short amount of time, they finished the temple. Um, they dedicated it. Nehemiah was there and they started doing what was um, in God's eyes, righteous, and they focused on God first, which is so important in life, I believe, and they, from that point on, God said, I'm going to bless you, and you can see they finished the temple, and their hard times weren't over, but their blessing came from that point, and they, mm -hmm. it was Yahweh's divine command to restore and build that set that all in motion. Now, let's fast forward. We have, um, Ezra 6 and 7, which most scholars believe jumps um, 60 years, and we get to 457 BC in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, and this secular decree to restore, um, to restore the, um, the temple. Um, there's not much to that. In fact, you, if you wanted to go look, you won't even find an actual date that took place. The, the so-called decree, decree isn't really dated in that 457. So scholars really had to guess with the 457. They know it the Persian Artaxerxes gave this decree, but you know, the 457, if you look closely at the text, it, 
it's, it's an extrapolation from the information there to claim the seventh year was 457. So that's a guesswork right there, right off the bat. And then further 444, which was the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Um, again, it's a guess, but that's just on the surface. If you dig down, there's four Artaxerxes in the Bible. And my question became, which one? Yeah. Which, which, which Artaxerxes do we, do we, is this prophecy built upon? And the thing that really struck me is scholars today, and you'll find 95% of them by and large, even if there's five different opinions, they all agree that somehow this Artaxerxes is a Persian long demand. It's almost all of them agree this, but not a single one can pro provide a biblical case for that Artaxerxes. And yeah. I've talked to him over the years. I've issued challenges. I've asked, I've talked to almost nearly every of the important scholars today, and they they basically blown me off and said, well, this is what we believe. And I really can't prove it, but it works. The math works. And I said, well, right. that's not good enough. Yeah. So Artaxerxes, it said the Bible says uh, from the commandment to restore and build, that's in English. In Hebrew, it's actually the debar. The word debar is from the debar to restore and build Jerusalem. And the word restore isn't actually restore, it's shub, which means to return. So from the word to return and build Jerusalem. Now that fits the events that took place. And scholars make that a secular thing. But if you look at the word Debar in this Hebrew scriptures, and I've read every single occurrence of Debar in the scriptures, vast majorities refer to the word or speech or utterance of Yahweh, the living God of the Bible. For mm -hmm. some reason, scholars have this blank spot. This, this, they pull a blank on this, and they won't even discuss that Yahweh is one of the options for the Debar right. or the commandment. And that's just what strikes me the most incongruence of all of this discussion is why they won't even discuss why it wouldn't be logical or reasonable to assume that Yahweh, his Debar, his word to restore and build Jerusalem might be the very word that we're looking for to the talks about the coming of Jesus. Right, yeah. Why, yeah. why wouldn't we look there first? Yeah, yeah, for me, it makes perfect sense. And that's where the, the prophecy came from. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought that was, that was really illuminating because I had just it kind of accepted those those four dates, and I think a lot of preterists land on that 457 because the math works out up right. you know until uh, Christ's um, baptism, and right. so it kind of just works out. Where, okay, here we have his baptism, we have the three and a half years he's cut right. off, and, and and so it just works out. And um, it's I, I never really bothered, you know. I just kind of assumed that 457 date. Uh, you kind of expose it a little bit in the book and same thing with that 444 um a lot of dispensationalists they use that and they use the the lunar um right. the lunar prophetic year of 360 uh, to to lead right up to, to jesus um you know entering into jerusalem on a donkey it's kind of just right. then cutting off and leaving you know leaving the last seven to to be yet fulfilled and right. uh so I, I really loved so i think for people that are listening right now you you see that decree starting uh it was, it was made by God um, to his prophets in 520. And then we see the, the, the temple, you know, it took you know, about four years for that to, to complete. Now, as far as the math goes, now that's kind of a lingering question, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Um, so how do you make that math work out if we're starting at four, uh, sorry, at, uh, at, at 520 BC to then be fulfilled? Right. Okay, fair question. I mean, if the math doesn't work, it doesn't matter how cool it sounds. And that's <laughs> yeah. like you said, the 457 and the 444, the math 
by some circuitous route does seem to work. So, I mean, and I, I believed it as well. I mean, honestly, for 20 years, that's the assumption I built upon until I decided to say, okay, I need to do my Berean duty here and just to make sure this is correct because this is important stuff. I yeah. Mean, as you know, most prophecy is built on Daniel 9 in one form or another. Yeah. I mean, it's the seven-year tribulation is nowhere found except implied out of Daniel 9. So it's a yeah. big deal. So yeah. I checked it out and I just give the Cliff Notes version is the easiest way to do it because it's a little bit complicated. It's mostly complicated because we've already assumed something that's an error. So we have to untangle all that presupposition in order to get back to the simplicity of a biblical calendar. Daniel 9 is a riddle. I mean, you can argue what you want, but it doesn't give it doesn't give us the, the length of time used in the prophecy. It yeah, gives us ambiguous true. blocks of numbers, which are Shabua or sevens. It does not give a time. It doesn't say year anywhere in the yeah, prophecy. Yeah. It's meant it's given as a riddle. So right up front, we have we have an enigma in the scripture. And anybody that says what well, has to be years or has to be this is not being totally explain explain ex, they're not explaining it as clearly as it, it uh, what the scripture says it doesn't say yeah. that it always says the sevens okay so I, I i believe in the biblical holy days are pictures of jesus and the, the spring holy days i believe the passover and, and all those are pictures of what yeshua fulfilled on our behalf in the first coming as that 13th enumeration if you will that suffering yeah. servant, that sacrifice, and we didn't get into that, but the sacrificial, if you go through the sacrificial rites in the Old Testament, every single feast day has 13th or 14th, nearly every single one has 13 yeah. or 14 sacrifices. It's yeah, right so cool. there. If anybody's been looking, Yeshua is the 13th sacrifice and 14th sacrifice, mm -hmm. if you want to look at it from that symbolic point of view. So the biblical calendar is lunar solar. Therefore, the religious side of that calendar, the, the, that part that points us to Yeshua, is based on the lunar cycles of the moon. I mean, even skeptics will acknowledge that. That's the fact that the, the biblical calendar through the year is based on that waxing and waning of the moon. That's the point. That's that picture of the Messiah. And that, that picture is built into that picture as 13 and 14 um, waxing in the cycles of the moon. The Jewish calendar is not a certain number of days as we understand it in our in our modern era. We we have 365 days in the calendar, and we jiggle the months so that they're all equals out into um, a calendar of 12 months. They in the Jewish calendar, or the, I say Jewish, I really should say biblical calendar. Okay, the biblical yeah. calendar is lunar solar, so they're fixed. And those cycles of 29.53 days of waxing and waning of the moon and that 365 day year of the solar cycle, they have to interlock somehow. And how they did that in biblical times was with the 13th month. So in reality, a biblical calendar is a certain number of lunar cycles. Most of the time it's 12 lunar cycles, but we get this intercalary month every once in a while, it's 13. And I thought, okay, wait a second here. If that picture, that 13th month is is that mechanism by which Yahweh balanced the solar cycle and the lunar cycle, why wouldn't that possibly be um, a way to calculate the, the Daniel 70 weeks? So sure enough, it works out. Bottom line is if you use a lunar calendar of 13 um, lunar cycles and a 29.5 day um, cycle, you get 515 years 
515.5 years from 520 BC, and that'll take us to the winter of um, 520 BC to take us to the winter of 5 BC. Now I've jumped a bunch of steps. I realize that um, yeah. I explain them in my book a lot, but the bottom line is you can use a biblical calendar to show that Jesus came after 70 weeks. Now we'll get into that. You asked, and I was really impressed that you asked this. It was a astute question, but what about the double meaning of the 7-7 seven, seven in, in Daniel 9-25? So uh, we can get into that here in a minute when you're, whatever you're ready, but that, that was really fascinating. Yeah, I just want to show this before I, I do want to get into that, but I want to show this just so people have a visual um, so they can see starting here at 520. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, the lunar cycles. Mm -hmm. um, it really comes out to 515 kind of you know, two years. Yeah. Our years, right? What we know as years. Correct. So that so that that gets us over here um, to the birth, right? Correct. Of Christ or the, I believe the it's a conception when which is more important, really? What was the real miracle? Was the miracle his birth or the fact that he was became God man at conception? The real yeah. miracle of the coming of Christ was the conception, if we really want to get down to it. So I believe that's a perfectly logical place for the coming to point us to, to that conception. And I believe that's what the 520 to 5 BC date does. Yeah, awesome. And then the so 14, it, that takes us to um, the Apostle Paul called by Yeshua there in like, 35, 36 AD. Right. That's the final date. If you add on all the lunar cycles up to uh, 14 lunar cycles, which is a symbolic number of lengths, there is no calendar that's 14 lunar cycles. I mean, I don't want to misrepresent it here, but we look at the, in, in the scripture, the 13 and 14 are intertwined with Yeshua, first in Matthew 1, and then in the, there's other places, as you'll see in the book. And I believe it's symbolism there that shows the coming of the Messiah as man, and then his resurrection and the, the 14 lunar cycles. And that's intricate to how Daniel 9 is to be understood. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so I can kind of show this this other chart, which kind of lays out uh, the 70 weeks. Mm -hmm. The way it's read, there is um, a, a first group of seven, um, and then the Messiah comes. And then we, of course, it, it runs out all the way to the 69th, where we see Messiah cut off. And so you talk right. about there being a double meeting there with with the first seven, uh, right. which I thought was, was really interesting. Um, so explain that. Okay. Daniel 9.25 is, I hate to send sounds slightly sensationalist here, but it is so absolutely wonderfully awesome. I don't know if you've read my other articles because after I've written the book, Daniel 9, I've discovered some really neat research about Daniel 9 that just kind of um, absolutely, in, solidifies in my mind how important the 1314 is and how important the, the seven sevens are. If you take Daniel 9, 23 through 27, as in the Hebrew text, that's exactly 100 Hebrew words. Mm. Biblical scholars have long acknowledged that the Hebrew text, some passages are sealed, if you will, by a certain number of Hebrew words. Mm. And the, the center point of that passage is often an, an emphasis point. So right. you take Daniel 9, 23 to 27, it's 100 words. It's a prophecy of Daniel 9. There's 49 words and 49 words with two words left in the center to make 100. If you take the first 49 words and you count all the way up to the 59th and 50th words right in the center, you'll see that those two words is 77. So if you look at the prophecy in Hebrew, in the Hebrew word structure, there's yeah. 49 
and then 49 as a wordplay, and then 49 wow. as um, um, wow. words. That's incredible. So, but it gets, wow. even, it gets even more awesome than that, okay? So you have a wordplay. The letters are exactly divided. There's 204 letters up to the 77s in the center of this passage. Right. And there's 10 letters of 77s, and then there's 204 letters afterwards. Daniel 9 was designed, okay? I, I don't care. Oh you can argue with me whether it was divinely inspired or you want to argue with me whether Daniel was um, divinely inspired or he just is a really cool dude and he came up with this neat, uh, new numerical arrangement, okay? But he programmed that into there. So Man. I go, wait a second. And I found this after reading writing the first book. I've just found this in the last year and a half. So I looked at it and sure enough, those that center two words, 77, that word play that Daniel wrote into the prophecy, he designed and he sealed it with exactly 100 words. So nobody could change this prophecy and make it something it wasn't. Those yeah, 77s, guess what number of words they are in verse five, 25, 13 and 14. Daniel wow. 925, the 13th and 14th word of Daniel 925. Oh, wow. Is 77s. Wow. So you have that right there. We have Daniel 9, we know is a riddle, right? Well, they gave us the, the code to the riddle right there in the beginning. The word seven is the only instance right there. The 13th word of Daniel 925 is seven, Shiva. That word seven is unique in Daniel 9. It's not found anywhere else. That word seven is 300, the, the value in Hebrew is 377. Its numerical factors are 13 times 29. Mm. Right there in Daniel 9, it gives us the key to understanding the, 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 the lunar cycle of the, of, the, of the prophecy. Right there, that word, that, that word where we're looking for a key. We have a riddle, where we're looking for a key. Yahweh encoded it right there. That's a lunar cycle of 13 times 29. That's crazy. So anyway, that's totally new outside of the book that I hadn't um, figured out till, till recently. And to me, you look at it and you look at this, this prophecy was designed and shaped and then put into the into words so that there would leave no doubt about who it was representing. It's representing Yeshua. Now that word seven, let's look at that word seven again. Um, let's, let's back up. The, if we're looking at Daniel 9.25 in terms, to, this is how I like to look at it now, in terms of word count. Daniel 9.25, the 13th and 14th words are seven sevens. Now, if you look at the 12th words with the Shabuah, that's, and you look at the 13th word, that's Shabuah, that means seven sevens. And it goes from the word to restore and build Jerusalem unto the, from the word, from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the coming of the Messiah anointed prince or Messiah is seven sevens. That, those two words there, the 12th and 13th word, and it's seven sevens. The way that word is spelled in Hebrew, sevens, or Shabuah, as it's commonly understand, is the exact same spelling as if you look at the front of the prophecy in Daniel 9.23, where it says 70 sevens. Mm. So in Hebrew, 70 and this word Shabuah here in Daniel 9.25 are the exact same word. For some reason, the Mezerites, and I think it was based on an accurate knowledge, they coded it or vowel pointed that word so that it have a value of sevens instead of 70. Yeah. And in reality, that word can be either represent the value of seven or it can represent the value of 70. So we have a Hebrew word in a passage that talks about the coming of the Messiah. And that basic simple statement that from the commandment or the word to restore and build Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah 
is 77s or 77s. Seven it, it doesn't matter. It's legitimate either way. Yeah. You can take that word and using a 13 lunar cycle times the 77s, if you choose to use that word as 70, and you'll find that that works out to be the 515 years. But what's neat about that, God left that word as a dual meaning. So not only can we see that Messiah coming as, as, as Christ, as, as conception, he left it for the bigger meaning to shine through so that as part of the prophecy as a whole, it can have its value of seven, 62 sevens, and seven, seven, the final seven. So we get a total thing. It talks about the two comings of the Messiah there. And it provides a mathematical mechanism whereby you can do that, two comings. Because one of the biggest con controversies Jew, um, Jewish rabbis claim is in the, the Gentile view of, or Christian Gentile view of this prophecy, is that it talks about two comings. He gets cut off. And what about this, this first coming after seven sevens? How can he come after seven sevens and then still be cut off um, after 69 sevens? So they point to this over and over again. And most Christian scholars try to get around this just by combining the seven sevens and the 62 sevens. Yeah. Which is, it's fine. I mean, it's a legitimate way to do it, but why did God leave it there on purpose? Why did he separate it? He yeah. separated and then he gave the word he separated it at a dual meaning. So that we could have a, a six, a, a two calculations to show what the Messiah came as a child, and then of course as after which point he was cut off, and the prophecy allows for both interpretations to take place. Wow. So, so I'm, I'm I'm just taking this in because yeah, we we always see. I can just pull up that chart again. Yeah. There's. It, it's it's split up as we have a seven sevens we have 62 sevens right. cut off and we have a, a last seven so right. as far as fulfillment goes um was there something significant with like because you mentioned it could be 77s the right. 77s what would that lead up to and then just the seven sevens what would that lead right. up to are, are there significant fulfillments there okay yes what that the, that that green little slice right there that 49 which is commonly understood as just seven sevens okay or 49 yeah, that Hebrew word there actually is Shabim. I mean, that's where it is without the vowel pointings. It's 70. Um, Daniel 9 starts with that. If you look in the Hebrew version of the Bible, you'll see that that word in Daniel 9, the Shabuah of the 12th word of Daniel 9.25 is identical without vowel pointings to the first word, which talks about 70. Yeah, they're identical depending on how you point that word in Hebrew, which vowel pointings weren't added till the, the dark ages. So we're not, Daniel wasn't given with vowel pointings. It was just given that the word Shabuah and left up to the person reading it to figure out what that meant. So that word Shabuah is seven sevens. It can represent seven sevens or it can also rep 77. So in that little mathematical formula, if you want to that word play is the value that green little square can have two values. It can have the seven seven value, which I sh you show in the chart there, or I showed in the chart, and then it can also have a total value of seventy sevens. Both things work, and that seventy seven value is what most prophecy teachers use and brings us to the coming of Christ in the second century ID. My point is, you can take that that little mathematical formula and you legitimately mathematically show that Jesus. It points to his first coming. I mean, not his, his first coming, but actually acts his birth, his conception right there in 5 BC. So I think there's coded right in that formula 
um, that Hebrew word formula is uh, showing that the Messiah, it, it provides the parameters to show way more accurately about the coming of the Messiah than we ever imagined Daniel could. Interesting. Yeah, so you see, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask uh, now because I'll go back to my questions. You know, a lot of people um, subscribe to the dispensational view that we have seven left. You know, you've kind of got that, as we looked in the chart, you got that leading up to, to Christ's uh, conception. And then with the 14, uh, with the Apostle Paul. So, um, you know, is, is there anything to you know, the that view that there's a, a final seven left? Um, I don't believe it, there's any evidence in the Bible that says there's a final seven years tribulation. Those words are not once mentioned. I believe that there's a, a three and a half years, a 42 months, a 1335. That's all plainly spelled out in, in Revelation and other places in the book of Daniel. Um, but Daniel 9, in my opinion, does not speak to the second coming. I believe it speaks to the first coming. I, yeah. I have a hard time understanding the logic of my um, dispensational brethren who say that this prophecy, this amazing prophecy that talks about the coming of the Messiah, 98.6, ironically, 98.6% of this prophecy, the temperature of the human body, 98.6% of this prophecy is about the Messiah. We all agree. Even if we have different interpretations, almost 99% of us as Christians believe it speaks of the Messiah. Yeah. But somehow we drop the ball and we do a bait and switch, the biggest in history, if you ask me. And we mm -hmm. change the, the focus from the Messiah to the Antichrist. And not only do we bait and switch this, we drop the Messiah and the messianic nature of the prophecy at the um, 69.7, at the end of the, that period of time. In that last seven, we talk about only the Antichrist. It's no longer about the Messiah. Mm. That on its surface doesn't make any sense to me. This yeah. is a Messianic prophecy. It's not an Antichrist prophecy. It's a Messianic prophecy. What happened to Yeshua? They'll all tell you it what it, his, his second coming, I mean, his, his death and resurrection took place between that 69th and 70th week. That makes no sense to me. If the prophecy is about making reconciliation for sins, um, ending transgressions, all things that Yeshua did on our behalf, how can we leave out that most important part out of the prophecy? We skip it. It's in a parentheses in between the 69th and 70th week. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody skips it because the math doesn't work. Though most of them bring it right up to the passion of Christ, the uh, you know Passover. But they never, the event itself never takes place. That feast day where Yeshua paid the price mm. for our sins, he became that wow. Passover lamb, took that's place outside the prophecy. That's, that's such a good point. Wow. You know, it's, it's yeah, not part right. of the prophecy. What happened? You yeah. know, so my point is, I am not a preterist or a millennialist that believes that um, everything happened in 70 AD, but I certainly believe. Daniel 9 doesn't talk about the seven-year tribulation or the second coming of Christ. It talks about what Christ did on our half, behalf um, in the first century AD. We still have the events of Revelation and some of the other prophecies in the Old Testament to come. I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, my, my daughter's named Maranatha, okay? So I believe in the second coming of Christ, and I believe it's future. It, it's not, yeah. not going to happen, right? I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't happened already. But I don't think we get oversensitive as dispensationalists or people who share that general idea to allow the amillennialist and the preterist to 
make the arguments when we should be looking just to scripture. And yeah. Daniel 9 doesn't, I don't see how it can point that final seven years to the, to the Antichrist when the whole prophecy was given to the Jewish people so they would believe in the Messiah. But then we cut out the Messiah out of the prophecy. I, I just do not understand the logic. It doesn't yeah. make it doesn't make sense on that, and I can show the math of why it doesn't work too. But I mean, if we just look on it as Christians, Jesus said He is not going to return until the Jewish people acknowledge that Him as their Messiah. Blessed until they say, "Blessed He's come in the name of the Messiah." We take the single most important prophecy of the Bible, and what do we do? We cut the Messiah out of it, the one given to the Jewish people. We cut the Messiah out of it, and tell instead tell them to look for the Antichrist. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never really thought about that, but you're you're absolutely right because we obviously we, even dispensation would, would still, um, you know, say that Jesus fulfilled you know all of that. Um, but you're right if we cut it off that 69 week, the the passion that's the entire passion week that we're yeah. now leaving completely outside of it. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have just a, a couple more questions um, on on this prophecy, just getting to the nitty gritty. Um, you know, I want you to comment on, on when he was cut off and then, you know, why there was a covenant for, for one seven. And I don't know if it's helpful to have this chart up here or not, but I thought this was, was kind of neat. Um, always, yeah, it's helpful. I always like looking back at stuff, um, and seeing how I've, my, I guess, evolved or my new knowledge, like we talked about earlier, I either learn more stuff and you find out, wow, this that what I understood is not exactly how I understand it now. That's what I, the chart there is still, as far as I can understand, accurate to the numbers. But the backstory is what's really awesome to me. I'll, I'll, let's took a look at the numbers there first. I believe the seven the seven years, or if we call, I'm, I get in the bad habit of copying that dispensational argument, the seven the seventh or uh, the final shabuah, that final period of seven, is incorporates the 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 time of Paul's conversion until the last witness, lit last Jewish witness was called of the, um, the Messiah. Um, yeah. That's the basic, okay? Now I can also show you how a one magnitude larger seven will take us to the, the, the destruction of the temple. So yeah, I can still make that work with the, the final temple and then the, the death of John, the final witness of um, Christ's um, death and resurrection. To me, the covenant, it, and I, I hope I have enough time to really explain this well. And it just cut me off or shut me up or whatever if I get too involved. Or, but this is so important. That covenant is not about the Antichrist. Let's go back to Daniel 9.4. The first words of, out of Daniel's mouth are what? Daniel 9.4 tells us um, he opened his mouth in supplication and cried out unto Yahweh. And his first words are Yahweh. I mean, uh, God, remember the covenant of mercy to them that love him and keep his commandments. Now, this word covenant of mercy is so congruent, so awesome. These are the first words out of Daniel's mouth. And they're, 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 they're a quote from Deuteronomy 7, where yeah. Moses is admonishing the children of Israel before they cross over the promised land and says, if you'll keep the covenant of mercy, the Yahweh um, if you keep my commandments, Yahweh will give you the covenant and mercy you promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant and mercy, if you go back, was the promise God made to Abraham. And that promise was to Abraham. He says, I have sworn by myself that because you have done this thing, you've offered Isaac 
and you in faith you you offered Isaac on the altar and because you have shown that faith to me I promise you I swear to you it's the first swearing of God Yahweh with any man in the Bible Abraham um, Yahweh swore with Abraham that if you because you've done this thing I will give you the promised land first of all that's an internal promise God swore by himself you can't break that nobody can break that Abraham couldn't even break that God said by myself there's no other obligating party. God promised Abraham, you get the promised land, done deal. But he also promised through thy seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And what is so awesome about this is that swear, swearing by Yahweh, the first covenant, the first swearing in the Bible was the word from which we get seven. Seven as a basic root is Sheba. To swear is spelled exactly the same in Hebrew, Sheba. Oh, wow. This word seven and square, just like seven and 70, seven, seven and square are the exact identical Hebrew root. It just depends on how you point them. So Yahweh made with Abraham a swearing of sevens. Okay. Catch, get mm. this. He swore with Abraham. I'll give you a swearing of sevens. Daniel opens his mouth in supplication to God via the words of Moses and said, Yahweh, remember your swearing of sevens with Abraham. Mm. Via the words of Abraham. So what does Yahweh send him? A prophecy based in the phonetic symbolic roots of sevens, the swearing of sevens. He sends him a prophecy yeah. of seven prophecy of seventy-sevens. That's what Daniel called for. I mean, it's it's amazingly congruent. Wow. That swearing of sevens. So the, the sevens, that covenant that Yahweh confirmed for that final week, is about the confirming the swearing of sevens with Abraham, the promised mm. seed. Yahweh said, when Yahweh said to Abraham, by myself, I have sworn, I have Shaba, I have Sheba with you. I, I, I swore with you. This, in thy seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Daniel picks up that and says, listen, remember that, Yahweh. Restore Israel and remember that, that, that promise with Abraham. And then Yahweh, by the angel Gabriel, sends Daniel this prophecy that says when that swearing will take place, when that, the fulfillment of that promise will take place. I mean, it's, it's amazingly congruent. Now, wrap your mind around this. That final seven was about confirming with eyewitness Jewish people. He confirmed that covenant with them, that swearing of sevens, okay? And yeah. you don't get that unless you first understand the, the phonetic Hebrew roots of seven in Sheba. In Daniel 9, the first occurrence of the word bless, Barak, I will bless in, all, in thy seed will all nations of the word be blessed. The word Barak is... A Hebrew word is found first in Daniel uh, Genesis 22:17, where Yahweh is promising that in thy seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That word Barak, okay? Barak in Hebrew is a new Hebrew, Hebrew value of 222. That's it's an interesting looking uh, value, 222. If you look at Daniel chapter 9 by verse count, by word count, chap the verse 15 is the exact center of Daniel 9. It was designed. <laughs> This is really cool. Daniel 9 was designed. So there's exactly 220 word, 22 words before it's verse 15 and 220 word, 22 words after verse, thing, verse 15. It was designed to show 222 words surrounding this verse 15, which talks about the mighty hand of Yahweh that will deliver Israel. And this, again, if you go back and look at the word that's quote is taken from, it's taken from Deuteronomy 7 again right where Yahweh promised and talks about the covenant of mercy. So Daniel designed Daniel 9 with 222 words so that you would understand this is about the blessing 
Yahweh promised Abraham to swore with him, he shabbat with him, that in thy seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. That final covenant, that final week, that covenant was confirmed. And you have to look at it as in the words of Paul in Galatians, the word, the the the, the covenant Yahweh um, God confirmed with through Christ. I mean, it says it right in Galatians. Um, the, the reference escapes me, but he says it. Yeshua, Jesus confirms the covenant. And Daniel 9 is a picture of the swearing of sevens with Yahweh, with Abraham, and that continuation until that prophecy was fulfilled, the blessing part upon the seed of Abraham's seed. So it's amazingly congruent. And, it, it, and it's, it's undeniable if you look at the total picture. It's not about the Antichrist. This is the preeminent prophecy in the Bible about Yahweh's redemptive plan for mankind through Abraham. And you look at Abraham, his numerical value is 41, the, the place value of his name. And you look at the list of Matthew, there's 41 names in that list. You look at um, the Jubilees, and we'll get into that in a minute. There's 41 Jubilees between Adam and Abraham. There's 41 Jubilees between Abraham and Jesus. I mean, we're talking about stuff that couldn't be made up any longer. That there's a pattern there to identify the coming of Christ. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I definitely want to get into the Jubilees and we'll get there quick. Um, but just to confirm, and yeah, I, I, you know, I read the Last Supper, he, he confirms the covenant of the Last Supper as well. He kind of uses that same language. Right. Um, uh, was that the crucifixion? Um, no, the crucifixion um, happened during that final seven, seven, during in the final seven, okay? The crucifixion took place, from my understanding of the numbers, how they work out, that when Moses and um, Elijah appeared on the transfiguration, that was when the uh, final seven began, that witness. Okay. And that final seven period of when Jesus confirmed the covenant with his many, that confirmation of the covenant we have to wrap our minds around it's a it's a promise that through abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed and how that's confirmed think about how that's confirmed if it's actually the promise with abraham it's confirmed by the eyewitnesses who lived to see that mm. so those eyewitnesses moses and elijah yeah. appeared to at the transfiguration from that point on we have a seven period a seven I say I again hesitate to say um, years because it's not really years it's a shabua a sevens from that point to um, Paul's conversion in 31 to 36 AD, and we don't know the exact dates of that. I don't think it's even really that important. But within that period, that final seven, we have all the eyewitnesses that Jesus personally called. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. So so that's why it was for, for a seven. It's right. Because it was con con going to conclude at some point. Um, Correct. With, with, with the with Paul's calling, wow, that's, that's incredible. But, and if you look at the bigger picture and the one magnitude larger seven, you'll still find that in the midst of that seven, the temple was destroyed. And then we, the final half of that seven, you'll get all the way to the death of Apostle John, which is the last eyewitness of that confirmation of the government. So that's within a parameter of a larger seven. And that, that's not anywhere stated in the prophecy itself i'm going to make that clear but i'm just saying yeah. larger magnitude a seven and if you look at daniel 9 all those words are interchangeable seven seventies they're all built upon the same thing um so i don't think it's too big of a stretch to see a, a larger magnitude seven fulfill the rest of the criteria of the prophecy and that's how i understand it anyway yeah and then you say you've got the the, the 40 years here between um the transfiguration 
in the destruction of the temple. Correct. Um, shining a light back on uh, the, the sign of Jonah and the 40 years that they, Correct. you know, repented. He probably um, so so what, what's the cutting off though? Yeah, so we'll move on to the, to the, um, to the Jubilees, but what, what did you uh, see as the, the cutting off of Yeshua? Um, the cutting off of the Messiah is in the midst of the week. And, and the, the Hebrew word there can mean in the middle of, exactly in the middle of, or sometime during, during the mm. week. And I, I see that that's what happened in the, during the final seven, that the Messiah was cut off. But that wasn't the whole story. It happened during the week, but the, the rest of the story was he rose from the grave again, and he confirmed, his resurrection confirmed the promise to Abraham's seed that through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Without that resurrection in the prophecy of Daniel 9, Daniel 9 doesn't really make any sense as a messianic prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So like I said, I'll, I'll put the links in there. I, I know some people, um, you know, there's a lot we, we've said and there's this, you know, you get into all the details in the book. And so, um, and, and the, the books are for free uh, to, to download. So uh, you, you, you got them on Amazon. You can get an actual Kindle version uh, right. for free, which, which is awesome. So I'll, I'll put those links um, in the show notes, but let's get into your, your final of the three series, uh, which is on Jubilees. And so you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier um about you know the 41 generations and i you know i'll give you a chance to kind of talk a little more about that but uh one thing i noticed um your calculation of jubilees there's sort of two ways to look at jubilees one being 49 years running on a 49 year cycle and then one being 50 year cycles we know the the, uh, the scripture really all they say is just the 50th year is the jubilee year and so um you see the 50th year also being the first year of the next cycle right so right. why did you land on just 49 year jubilee cycle versus a uh, 50 okay good question um and i like many things in scripture <laughs> like crazy um my premise again is i believe the bible is congruent okay the first mention of the word jubilee in the bible is in reference to the um god's coming down on mount sinai and shouting out the Ten Commandments to Israel. Now, if you take the chronology and wind it backward, which I've done in one of my articles on my book, you'll find that, that this jubilee, this yobel, this sounding of a trumpet took place on the 50th day from the crossing the Red Sea. Mm. A reasonable case can be made, and I can do, I've done it chronology, chron- chronologically in, in some of my articles, um, that that is a picture of the resurrection and the, the events that will take place in, in when Yeshua died and rose from the grave. If you take the Red Sea crossing as a picture of Yeshua's death and resurrection, which some of the New Testament authors do imply that. Um, I don't, I can't give you the reference in chapter, but you look it up, you'll see, I think it was Paul that talked about the resurrection and our baptism with Israel in the, in the, on the Red Sea. Um, that's a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. If you count 50 days from that resurrection or that crossing the Red Sea, you'll find that that Jubel, Jubel or that first that sounding of the trumpet, because a Jubel is a trumpet, and it's a ram's horn trumpet, and that's where we get the word Jubilee from. 50 days, you get that giving of the law, okay? Let's fast forward to the second temple area when Yeshua died and rose from the grave. If you take um, the chronology, and you lay it out there according to the biblical feast, Yeshua's death took place on Passover. He rose again on the first day of the week. 
And then 50 days later, this Holy Ghost, instead of the law written on the tables of heart, I mean, the tables of stone, the Holy Ghost came and, and endowed the Jewish um, disciples with the Holy Spirit on the 50th day, which was Pentecost. So you see that pattern completed or fulfilled in the Second Temple era. If you lay that chronology out according to how the Bible describes how a jubilee should be celebrated, a little jubilee, this Shavu, um, Pentecost or Shavuot, if you lay it out, it starts on the first day after the resurrection and runs to the, the first day following seven, seven sevens of weeks. So you have the seven completed weeks and then the, that final seven, the final day after the seven is the first day of the week, it gives you 50 days. That's a mini jubilee. It's a mini jubilee in practice as in well as in symbolism from the Old Testament. Like I said, I believe the Bible is congruent. So when it talks about the jubilee by years in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, my first inclination is to look to see how it can be fulfilled congruently like a, a mini jubilee, which is the jubilee of days. So that's how I started it. And to me, that makes the most congruent sense. It's seven sevens followed by the following year being the jubilee year so you're correct in saying that jubilee is 49 years but it's it's 49 plus one times the number of years your um, site jubilee cycle so the first jubilee is 50 your first jubilee of life when i turned 50 this year so my first jubilee was this year of my life it's 50. my second jubilee would be 99. right so it's 49 plus one so however many number of cycles it is, it's plus one. So that's the way I see the Jubilee. It's congruent. It, it follows 49 cycles because the Sabbath cycles are unending and uh, the Sabbath year cycles are unending in the Bible. And they are that Jubilee interlocks with those years. And it, it follows on the first year after the completed 49 years. So that's how I see the Jubilee. I hope that made some kind of sense. Yeah, no, no, it definitely did. Um... So you touched on the, the 41 generations um, in time that's to Abraham. So talk a, right. a little bit more about that. Um, okay. And then we'll get into Jubilees by 10. I've long been interested in financial markets. And my wife is German and one of oh, 15, 20 years. I don't even remember how long it was. It's over uh, probably 20 years ago. I had a lot of time. I don't speak German. My wife does. And we went to Germany and I had way more time than my hand was good for me. So I decided that. I was interested in cycles and one of the, the holy grail of stock market trading and cycles is to long-term cycles because things are cyclical and they happen according to patterns. And I thought, I believe in the Bible. So you know what, what if I try to look back in history and saw when the biblical Jubilee cycle, that'd be the holy grail of all cycles. I mean, we can, I can trace this back in the Masoretic texts, you know, 2000 years before Christ. So if I could find that, I would, I might be able to make sense of some of financial patterns, right? And I was already interested in biblical prophecy and stuff. So this was just a side thing. And I, I got out my chronology sheet and my Excel thing. And I started, in order to do that, I had to go back and be a whole chronology of the Bible. So I had all the dates. So I'd have some fabric of, upon or framework upon which to overlap the Jubilees. And of yeah. course, identify the Jubilees. So I did the entire chronology from Adam, from the Mesoretic, I want to make clear it's the Mesoretic text all the way to um, Yeshua, basically the biblical, all the chronology I could find in the Bible. And on my website, you can dig that out. It's, um, I provide everything there free of charge and it's it's 6,000 years. The first time I calculated that, my, my Excel computer crashed because it was too many calculations for it. So I had to tone it down, but you, you'll find that. And I provide all the references, you will click on things, you can find the references I used and 
for anybody that's a chronology junkie, you'll, you'll really appreciate it. So anyway, I laid out the chronology to the best of my ability. And then I decided, okay, let's roll this back from identifying what could possibly be the, the, the Jubilee cycles in the Bible. And I laid this out in my Jubilee code, all the, the math and the biblical references for the Jubilees and the Sabbath cycle. So we laid out the Sabbath cycles and then I ran the Jubilee and Sabbath cycles backward. And I thought, well, I'm just curious where this would end up. And I want you to be clear, I ran this backwards and I didn't have any clue if it would land on Adam or and you know where it would end up. Because all I did is just did a copy and paste in my Excel spreadsheet and ran the numbers backwards. To my surprise, and I, I, I don't know, I, I could be wrong even, okay? I really don't really matter, but I ran it back in year one and a job, Adam's um, creation fell on year one of a Jubilee and a Sabbath mm -hmm. cycle. I thought, oh, okay, that's really cool. So then with the basic backwards, I could run it forward now and start counting the Jubilees. And there is a, there is a uh, non, what do you call it? Uh, escapes my mind, uh, apocryphal book of the Bible called the Book of uh, Jubilees that yeah. attempts to do that or some history of that. So this is an idea that's in the consciousness of biblical tradition that the Jubilees yeah. represent certain things in history. So I ran it yeah. backwards and then I started running it forward and I found out, oh man, Abraham was born on the 41st Jubilee. And of course that's stuck in my mind because of Matthew one, there's only 41 generations there. And I'm thinking, wait a second, yeah. Jesus, uh, Matthew left out four names. So we know it was a contrived list. He made that list, it was crafted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, either he made a mistake or it was crafted. I choose to believe he, he made him the list on purpose to give us a bigger picture here. So I thought, okay, 41, Matthew, uh, Abraham was born and 44th Jubilee. I thought, well, that's pretty neat. I kept running it forward. And sure enough, Yeshua was born on the 41st Jubilee from mm -hmm. Abraham or the 82nd Abraham. Jubilee from um, Adam. I said, okay, that's got to be more than a coincidence now, at least in my book. And yeah. um, that's kind of where that all came from. And then I started calculating Jubilees by different number um, patterns to see if there's any I believe God, what is the verse? He says the end from the beginning and the things that are not yet done. He, he prophesied the Old Testament and he's already set these things in motion. And I thought, yeah. well, if that's the case, he laid it out for us and we probably could find patterns that show that he had a time schedule and a, a precision to his history of and his redemptive plan. So that was the basis of it. I, I went to that looking for something I thought was there. And yes, I know you're going to, many will argue, well, you look for it hard enough, you're going to find it. Well, I did, but, you know, yeah. we'll let others debate whether the accuracy of that or not. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. That's, that's awesome. So I'll pull up a chart. And one thing you talk about is, uh, you know, one of those patterns that you saw was uh, Jubilees by, by 10. Um, yeah. So I guess this is the only like Jubilee chart that I have in here. Um, right. Hoping this is not in the way, but yeah, talk about what you kind of saw in that pattern of 10. Okay, let's start with Abraham um, that's on the 41st Jubilee. Uh, what really struck me in the symbolism wise was when you got from Abraham, you got to the 70th Jubilee from Adam. What happened in that period is you had seven, uh, uh, three periods of 70 years. You had the 70 years of Babylonian captivity beginning in the 70th, 70th Jubilee. You had the 70 years between the destruction of the first temple and the rededication of the second. And then you had this 70 years of divine indignation, or Yahweh says, um, I'm mad at you, Israel. And 
uh, I, um, yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm mad and I, um, my um, anger is so furious at you. Um, and this, this 70 years period began when the Shekinah departed the temple. And you've mm. come forward, that's 70 years of de um, desolation, Yahweh's divine anger. We come to a period and that ends, that 70 years divine anger ended when the 70 week began, when that divine command went out to restore and build Jerusalem. So to me, it tied the Jubilees in with Daniel 9 in, in a really neat symbolic way. The yeah. decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Look in big picture, we have 70 Jubilees. We then we had 70 years and then we had 77s. And you can yeah. trace that through history. It's so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I mean, so here's, you know, kind of a, another chart where you kind of laid out right uh some more of that and it basically takes us basis us, take takes us to, to present day which you have as the 123rd is that right that's correct and we just happen to be living in the 41st um jubilee from yeshua and that's not even speculation we know when yeshua came within even if we disagree by 10 or 20 years our generation is living in the 41st jubilee cycle from yeshua that's, yeah. just, that's just what it is. Um, I'll let the readers decide what that means. And, you know, I, I, I don't like speculation about when Christ will come back or even if it has any relevance to that. Um, yeah. Because we don't know. I mean, we don't know what Yahweh had in mind when he set these patterns in, in, in place. And I really don't care to speculate because I can take these patterns and I'm looking back now in history and saying Yahweh is awesome. The living God of the Bible is unbelievably awesome and everything he's done is to show that he loves us that he's paid the price for our sins and then yes he's if we can count on the, what he did in the past he's coming again and we can count on that yeah yeah that's so awesome um so i'm sure people are wondering so uh we're in it now the 41st when did it start when will it end um roughly the the 41st um, jubilee and it's been a long time since I've thought about that. Uh, sometime in this next decade, it will end, but it began, this, this final Jubilee began in the 19, um, oh, I'd have to pull my stuff off. I haven't looked at it in a long time, but basically we're most of the way through the, 40, the 41st Jubilee from Yeshua. In the, in the second temple so yeah i don't know exactly when it'll end uh, sometime in the end of the next the end of this coming uh decade sometime it began 50 years earlier in 1970s when i believe the uh, miss jubilee if i got the chronology right you know and yeah i just want to make that perfectly clear i don't claim to know for sure um, it's yeah. based on the chronology. I provided everything on my website free of charge. You can look back and see my numbers. I provided 20 years worth of research in my chronology chart on that Masoretic text. And um, I think it's um, think it's accurate as best I can be. But to me, it's like, okay, we're living in really exciting times. Um, I'm looking forward to the return of Christ. When that'll happen, I, haven't, I don't know. And I'm not going to even begin yeah. to speculate on that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, without putting a date on it, you know, we, we can look at and, and say, I think we're all looking forward to, to prophecy being fulfilled and, and to seeing Christ's second coming. Uh, I mean, which yeah, really I mean, who would have thought a year and a half ago that we'd be in a system where you can't buy and sell anymore in some places without a passport? 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so before we move on, I guess I, I do want to ask you about the Septuagint chronology. But, you know, as far as and you sort of mentioned, because you really don't get into any of this in, in, in your books, as far as like how you view the book of Revelation and right. what, what prophecies yet to be fulfilled. You don't really get in, you pretty much just stick to what we talked about, the Jubilee cycles uh, and, and, right. and the, the, you know, Daniel's prophecy. But I'm curious just to pick your head about that a little bit uh, as far as, you know, what 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 do you see left to be fulfilled um, and, and how do you view the book of Revelation? Okay. I started out as a pre-tribulational rapturist based on the seven year, seven, seven years tribulation based on Daniel 9, which yeah. I didn't learn, I believed until later I researched it and found out that's why it's based on that, you know. Yeah. So I went backwards and found out, oh, this is what I believe because that's what we believe about Daniel 9. Right. When I realized Daniel 9 wasn't have a strong foundation in that seven year tribulation period thing, I started really look at Revelation in a different light. Instead of trying to force the seven-year fabric into revelation i just started taking the, the the dates just as they're given you know 42 months 13 35 days so i believe revelation is unfulfilled most of it uh, i believe the the symbolism of the the vials and the trumpets and all that are, are yet to come um as far as i understand it the most for the most part okay i don't believe I guess you could argue the horsemen of the apocalypse and some of that stuff is, is starting to be fulfilled. I don't know. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know where that falls in. I started out as pre-tribulational rapturist. I lean based on my understanding of Daniel 9 and that the seven year is not part of that framework. I don't believe that there's a rapture before the seven year tribulation. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm leaning more towards the fact that it's pre-rapt. Towards Yahweh's wrath, we will not be subject to that. In his second coming in that wrath, we will be raptured before that the wrath of God is poured upon the earth. And I personally believe that time frame is going to be more compressed than we believe it was because we've shoehorned seven-year tribulation into that. So mm, that's yeah. where I'm at right now. And I, I cannot be dogmatic about it because, frankly, I've read nearly every book written on the pre-trib rapture, the, the post-trib rapture, and the pre-wrath rapture, anything I can get my hands on, and I can't wrap my render around totally around it yet, so yeah, that's where I'm at. I, you know, I believe he's coming back exactly when. I believe it's soon. I mean, I, I hope it's soon, but um, I, I don't know as far. I believe the pre-trib, I mean, the, <laughs> the pre-wrath rapture makes more sense to me now than it had before, and the yeah. tribulational rapture makes less sense than it did before, but I don't think that's enough to be angry about with other believers or even get into a huge debate about it because most of us don't even understand what we know about Daniel 9. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the uh, kind of humility with that. Um, like I said, I was really just curious on, 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 on your view of that. So that, that's cool. Um, and for anyone that's interested, you know, like I said, I'll, I'll put a link to your website and you, you have links to that, to your, that Excel spreadsheet that you're referring to, yes. you have it in the PDF, so you can get in there and, and, and dig in and see, yep. uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's really cool. Um, I have to ask, I want to get into kind of some personal questions to end the interview, mm -hmm. but this, so this will be kind of like the wrap up question, but I have to ask this because I, I just spoke with. Uh, Doug Woodward about the Septuagint chronology like just a few weeks back so the listeners probably thinking the same thing like okay well what about the Septuagint um, I know you've written an article about this on your site as well 
Uh, so without, you know, getting too deep into the weeds, just kind of, you know, give your, give your, uh, I guess your, your cell on the Masoretic is obviously everything that, uh, you know, you've done as far as the Jubilees goes is built off the Masoretic. So kind of give your, your pitch for the Masoretic versus uh, the Septuagint, which um, I guess, you know, I'll just leave it to the listener to understand that there's a difference between the two uh, and why would you lean towards the Masoretic? Correct. If, if they've already, t- you've already talked to Doug, then you, you already have the background of it. The, Septu- the Septuagint is believed to be, we have older records of the Septuagint than we do the Masoretic text, okay? I believe the Masoretic text is the accurate text. First of all, because you're, let me just look at it this way. The, if you look at the Septuagint and you'll see how it was embellished with the Greek mindset in, in um, even including words um, like in the Red Sea crossing, the words instead of the Red Sea was put in there instead of the Yom Suf or the Sea of Reeds and stuff. There's, there was a tendency of the, Mesera, of the Septuagint to influence the Greek text with ideas from their culture, which we all do. I mean, the King James Version has done the same thing. I mean, we, we put current words in there to reflect our, our history. I believe the Hebrew text is more accurate. Um, one of the basic ones I'll go to is the numerical structure of it. You won't find Daniel 9 in the 100 words, and it's it's specific design, the exact word count mm. in the Septuagint. You won't find it. Right. Um, if you look at the if you look at Genesis 22, and, and we're talking about the, the swearing of the, um, the swearing with Abraham, that nine, those 19 verses in, in, in Genesis, the, um, the it's called the binding, um, the Deca, I believe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right in, in, in Hebrew tradition. That binding, that that 22 verse words is a, is a story whole. That word count is specifically centered around the word Isaac. There's 153 words before Isaac, and there's 153 words after Isaac. That word, that that account was numerically sealed. And I have a hard time seeing how the Septuagint was able to copy that, which they were not. My final proof, to me, the biggest thing about the Septuagint is they took a liberty with God's word that I don't think anybody has the right to take. The word Yahweh, the most important, arguably the most important name word in the Bible is Yahweh, yod heh vav That's how he revealed himself to us in the Bible. It's mentioned like 5,000 times. In Hebrew, they give it as Yahweh. Yeah. In the Greek text of the New Testament, they give us an indiscriminate title named Kyrios or Lord. Mm. If the Septuagint translators had... I call it audacity to take the name of living God of the Bible out and replace it with a title. What other information would they believe they're justified and adapting? And that's how, that's to me the basic thing. That's a basic litmus test to me. They took out the name of Yahweh, the living God of the Bible and replaced it with a title. So they would meet the expectations of the Greek audience to whom it was going to be written and curios god and we we see we are inheriting that that mentality today and the king james version copied that they use lord instead of yahweh yeah and one of my favorite stories in the bible is is daniel i mean sorry daniel too but david he went out to the philistines he's a shepherd boy and he came out there with stood before goliath with a stone and a sling and what did the bible say david said he says i come to you 
and I'm paraphrasing, so excuse me, but he says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. No. He says, I stand before you in the name of Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. It's you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, a personal it's God in the Bible. So yeah. the Septuagint took the liberty of removing the name of God 5,000 times out of the Bible and replaced mm. it with the title of, a, of an indiscriminate Greek God. Okay? Yeah. If they could do that, there's no limit to what they would be willing to do. I'm not saying the Mesoretic tech necessarily has to be perfect. I don't know. But I'm telling you, there's passages in there that are. I believe yeah. um, Daniel yeah. 9 is one of them. It's numerically sealed. Uh, my, my last couple articles on Daniel 9 are really awesome. And you'll see in depth of how the prophecy was sealed. I can show you in Genesis 22. I can show you in, in, the, in the very text that um, Doug would talk about. Um, in, in Genesis where the chronology is written out there, you'll see some really neat patterns in there, how they was numerically yeah. sealed around one name. Mm. <clears throat> so yeah. I believe the Mesoretic text is more accurate. And I think that there is no Jewish conspiracy to hide the identity of Messiah. In fact, I can show you at the Mesoretic text that Daniel 9 proves the Messiah is in a way that the Septuagint cannot even touch. Right. Yeah, I have looked at I have looked at the, the Septuagint and, and and their kind of version of uh of Daniel nine and it's it, it it'll make your head scratch even more. It sort of just right. kind of blows everything up. It's like it's it's like what in the world is this? Um, but yeah, so you know, ultimately, yeah, you you kind of have to look at the two and 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 you know, one of them is wrong, one of them is right. And uh, you know, I, I think you're and this is kind of what I talked to Doug about too because I had been indoctrinated to because I've read so much uh, other, other works like yours. Right. Um, and I, I think your body of work that you did in that third book of Jubilees, it, it, it's hard to argue with, with that. You sort of see a stamp um, with just the math, uh, with the Masoretic. Um, so, right. uh, so yeah, I think that so, sort of speaks for itself. Um, cool. So uh, yeah, I want to kind of end this interview with some personal questions. These are just for fun, kind of get to know you kind of thing. Um, so, so we'll go there now. Uh, what are some of your favorite uh, movies and TV shows, music and books? Um, what are some of my favorite? Of course, my favorite books are this. Daniel, Daniel would be my favorite book, and that's in the Bible. Um, secular books, I like Where the Red Fern Grows. Um, that's, that is just one of the best books ever written, as far as I'm concerned. I read it when I was a young teenager and it just always stuck with me. I like Westerns. I like Lula Moore. I like Zane Grey. Um, I like contemporary thrillers. I pretty much read anything I can get my hands on. So, um, yeah. but I think if I had to pick one book that really touched me, um, it would be Where the Red Fern Grows. By, wow, um, that's awesome. I think it's Jean Lee Latham, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a fantastic book and it's, it'll make you, it's a tearjerker for sure. It's about two dogs and a boy and anyway it's really it's a really good book yeah that's awesome so music i like classical music i like um christian music um i don't like i don't like christian um, rock but i like christian contemporary um, some contemporary i like the old hymns um I, I love classical music we raised our children um to play music and violin and piano so uh, classical music has been a big part of our family tradition for 20 years so right on Awesome. What about um, movies and TV shows? Uh, my favorite movie of all time would be um, <laughs> my, my family drive them nuts. I always want to watch it is The Four Feathers with um, Heath Ledger. 
<clears throat> no, I've never, I've never even heard of that. Oh, that's that is. I mean, to me, that's the classic book. It's, I mean, the classic movie. It's about a, a military guy who is in British in the imperialist time, and they have to go to war in Sudan. Anyway, he decides he doesn't want to go to war, and it's about his transformation of being called a coward to going and seeking out his friends and making right that he wasn't a coward. And um, mm. it's fantastic acting. It's a poignant story, and it's powerful. Makes you think. So I would definitely say that Four Feathers is. Um, my personal favorite movie by far. Cool, right on. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of Heath Ledger's Joker. I know he, he's he's a great actor. Um, so let's see. So you mentioned your favorite book of the Bible being Daniel. Um, you have a favorite character and a favorite verse in the Bible? I have lots, but I'm, I like Daniel just because I've studied it so much, and I think Daniel was amazing. Um, as far yeah. as and he was one of the few people acknowledged by God as righteous. Mm. Um, he was a man who lost everything a man would hold dear in this secular world, and he became he didn't he wasn't a revolutionary. He worked within the system God in, mm. set in place, the secular world system he was, yeah. and he grows to power in that because of his righteousness and consistency and righteousness. And I think that's yeah. a to me, it's a good model, especially in the day and age where we live, where a lot of Christians have become revolutionaries and um, their message has gone off. The message of Christ and his redemptive plan has become more of a political <coughs> mix of religion and politics. And I mm -hmm. think Daniel's a good model for what we can do as believers and stand firmly, but still work within a system God put us where God placed us. So yeah. I really admire the mentality behind uh, what Daniel did and in, the, in the, the powerful nation that he lived in and how he kept his testimony and provided us with the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, so cool. Um, yeah, that's good, that's good, good commentary, good application for today. Uh, do you have a, you know, do you have a favorite verse or a verse that uh, it's kind of speaking to you right now? I like 2 Timothy 2. Um, Timothy 2, 12, uh, I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day um, is a powerful verse of faith. And it's a powerful verse of faith that Paul had in, in God and in the belief that, and we know Paul was a, an amazingly fallible human being. He, he was a murderer and um, he did it in, in, in what he believed to be a righteous um, Yeah zealously but he he lived a life that uh, and believed by faith that Yahweh um, would keep what he, um, Paul committed unto him so I, I love that verse um, I'm writing right now uh, my fourth novel and it's, it, that verse is at the, the heart of that idea that um, faith and the power it has to transform our lives so right now that's probably my verse my go-to verse right now just because it's part of something I'm thinking a lot about right now and how faith um, directs us and especially how faith as a parent, um, how we commit our, our, our children. I have five children and, and we can apply that verse, not just in a personal way, but I know in whom I have believed and persuaded that Yahweh or the, our God of our Bible and his son Yeshua, we commit our children to him. And I have faith that he will um, keep that, which we committed unto him. And I, I just, to me, I'm just thinking a lot about that right now. So I, that's something that's important to me. 
I mean, I have a lot of favorite verses, but that's right now on my radar. Yeah, praise God. Uh, what do you like to do for fun? Oh, I have a long list. I like to work, honestly. Um, I enjoy what I do. I'm a plumbing contractor. I work with my hands every day. Uh, we have a big garden. Um, I like gardening. I like building things. But um, if you want leisure, I like to swim. I, my, we rock climb, sport climb, rock climbing. I like um, biking. And we, we've hiked the Huachuca Mountains where we live and the mountains around us in Arizona for almost 30 years now. So we like the outdoors, hiking, biking, mountain climbing, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, right on. Um, all right, if you could visit five events in the Bible as a spectator, what would they be? Well, have the I Jubilee in mind, the Jubilee Code in mind, it would be, uh, without a doubt, it would be um, Genesis and the Garden of Eden, um, before the fall, preferably, to see what it was like. And then um, the 41st Jubilee with Abraham, I would love to have seen and been there and see the faith of Abraham when him and Isaac were up on the mountain and watch his faith, knowing that even if that knife fell into his son Isaac, they would be coming back down off that mountain. I would love to yeah. see the the faith on Isaac's uh, face or his fear or his trust in his father. I, I just would like to see how that played out. Um, yeah. I would like, of course, the Ref 41 Jubilees later. I would love to have been there at the, um, the conception of Christ and then later as, as, as death and resurrection. Um, and then finally, I would say the future. I would like to be there when Yeshua reigns on this earth. And I believe I will yeah. be, but um, I like to see things restored to the Edenic project. In other words, things restored how he intended it in the beginning. So um, that's my chronology, five things. Yeah, yeah, right on. Um, cool. So let's uh, let's hear, you know, like I said, I'll put the links, um, but go ahead and, you know, share, share your website, how people get in touch with you, kind of okay. like let us know what you're working on now. Uh, you kind of hint to some of that and then, and then we'll close out. Okay. Um, my website is the 13th enumeration.com. It's the 13 is number 13, the 13th .com. And if you want to go directly to my blog, it's slash blog 13. Um, I've written a ton of articles there. I've written a whole bunch of articles about the Septuagint Mesoretic text, um, which, which is important to this discussion. Um, I've written recently several articles on Daniel 9 and its numerical structure. And that to me is absolutely fascinating. If you're into that kind of stuff, it's 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 deep, but it's it's fascinating, and it to me seals these prophecies as um, divine inspired, divinely inspired, and in, in the book. Yeah. So um, I've written, of course, the three nonfiction books: um, Daniel nine, thirteenth um, enumeration, Daniel seventy weeks, and the Jubilee Code. All my books are free on, the, on my blog. Um, if you want to buy them in print, you can do that on Amazon. I make no money on that. That's my cost, the price there. Um, those, to me, it's been a labor of love. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to share that with other people. You can also buy them on Kobo, Barnes & Noble, anywhere other retailers free of charge in the digital version. So that's accessible to um, readers. Um, I've written three novels based on the same information, trying to reach a wider audience. And I've, uh, believe it or not, had more success reaching a wider audience with the fiction books. You know, the parables in the Bible, I guess, reached more audience there. And same with mine. Um, I've reached over 60,000 readers so far with the wow. novels. And my final novel is, uh, my, my final novel, well, who knows? My, my, my latest novel coming up is takes 
um, some of the things we've discussed and writes it out. It's called the Lazarus Ciphers. And it's about a father who um, has two broken children that he's tried everything to restore them to their faith. And um, he left, leaves them in a will, seven cipher, biblical Hebrew ciphers to solve in order to gain their inheritance. And it's about their journey through solving those crypto cryptograms and um, riddles in the scripture and they, on their journey back to faith. So, Right on. Awesome, man. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, like I said, I, I was reading your books and just kind of my little pitch, you know, as I was reading it, there were several points where just my, my jaw kind of dropped. And I thought, okay, I got to see if I can get them on. Um, so I really appreciate, um, you know, your, your time and you, you know, laying all this out and, you know, really, truly it, it's inspiring just to see, you know, all the work that you, you put into it. Um, as you mentioned, you know, you sort of had a certain way you're thinking about it and then you know as a Berean you wanted to dig in for yourself and so you know that that's that's inspiring uh, as a, a student of the Bible um, to to do the same so you know I really appreciate that um, but yeah so uh, if you just close this out in prayer uh, we'll conclude Father Yahweh in heaven we thank you for your wonderful words those words that you tell us that speak of your love for mankind and your desire to reconcile us to you through your, your son Yeshua, through Jesus. And Father, we thank you for providing those wonderful words in your, in your Bible and your, your, your scriptures that tell us of your love for us. And we thank you for them. We hope that you inspire us to search out those words, Father, and share them with others. Thank you for the privilege. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at the Weird Christian Podcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.